I've always cared about the underdog. I've always cared about making a difference. And I think a lot of that is just because I had to grow up fighting. So I had to grow up fighting for myself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Holly Lawson. She has a background in boxing and mixed martial arts, but currently she is, in her own words, turning your favorite celebrity into a superhero. And I first heard about this when I was in L.A. and she was talking about working with Rosamund Pike during the filming of David Fincher's Gone Girl. And Pike had to gain a bunch of weight, lose a bunch of weight, and Lawson has turned this into a career. Um, she just has such a great reputation for personal training, and she's an incredibly likable, smart person on top of it. So I think everybody sort of falls in love with her. Um, she's one of my favorite people that I've ever talked about boxing with because you get kind of this great insight into what's happening with fights but also just behind the scenes she's been around it for a long time and I first saw her at wildcard and got a, a pretty heavy dose of the stink eye <laughs> and then later on we became friendly with one another and uh, she's she's just one of the most interesting people that uh, I've met in boxing and it was uh, a real pleasure just to have an opportunity to talk with her for an hour and share it with you guys. So I hope you enjoy Holly Lawson on this week's episode of Tourist Information. Well, this was interesting because I remember I was going there and it was the first time I'd been to like a big American gym. And at this time, 2010, this is around... Mar Actually, it's almost exactly 10 years ago. I think it was March of 2010. Okay. And Pacquiao was, it was an event just to see him come down to train. They would shut down the gym. They had private security just, just for the parking lot of his arrival. And mm -hmm. then when he, when he wasn't there, you train. There were just celebrities popping in all the time. And I remember spotting you in the corner of the gym I was waiting for Rigondeaux to come in and train, who was like a very minor attraction <laughs> at that time. And I think he was living in Freddie's little apartment um, in the wildcard complex. Yeah. yeah. And then I think there was that weird motel that was next door, the Travel Lodge, something like that. Yeah, they, they tore that down. They tore, they tore it down. Thank, thankfully. <laughs> like yeah, I stayed there. A, they replaced it with what seems to be a very reasonable, like Hampton Inn or something. Okay. <laughs> well, I stayed it's there. A yeah. Cleaner. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't my favorite. It was a punchline to everybody at the gym who found out I was staying there. But I remember seeing you train there and asking Freddie about you for some, I mean, very peculiar reason because there was nothing. It was nothing notable about what you were doing on the bag. I, <laughs> oh, I just, here we go. <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, you you had so such a, a terrible intro to a podcast. Just so you know. <laughs> well, no, I mean, we are familiar. You're not. A, you're not actually. I mean, for a podcast, it's called Tourist Information, where I'm trying to say I'm a tourist to every person I'm talking to. You and I have had one or two conversations over the last decade, so I'm a little familiar with your story. But I remember, I remember just as an introduction how focused you were training and asking Freddie about you and. 
how unbelievably unapproachable you are. <laughs> 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 I remember thinking. I'm actually really proud of that. <laughs> yes. I lived in such terror of trying to come over and say, wow, you look really great what you're doing your training. I'd love to know, are you a professional and, and what are you doing? Which I did not do until I think much, much later. Um, but I want to know how you got into boxing. How you, you, We grew up relatively close to one another. I was in Vancouver and you were, what, how far away? Not 100 miles? Yeah, Sunshine Coast, so not... I mean, I guess maybe it's 100 miles, but it's a waterlocked peninsula, whatever that means, uh, only accessible via a ferry that stops running at 10 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in a tiny town. I wouldn't even, it's not, I think it's actually technically now, it's a suburb of Vancouver, almost considered, but at the time, you know, growing up, it was a whole separate universe. You know, Vancouver was like the big city. And how do you get there from there to wanting to approach boxing? Like, I want to understand for you, because like you, you're really facing down, this is pre the Olympics allowing women to compete, professional mm -hmm. boxing for women. I think the, around the time, how old were you when you turned pro or like what year was it you turned pro? 2011. So yeah, 2011. And at that time in 2010, I think they were, Maybe later in the summer, they announced that the women's boxing was going to be a sport. And at that time, I had uh, decided that I wanted to fight professionally. I think I'd, I'd made up my mind about that. But um, I remember having a conversation with Freddie about that because in order to do, in order to enter the Olympics, I would have had to go back to Canada and represent um, there. And LA is... This year, I will realize that this year I have been in Los Angeles longer than I had actually been in Canada. So I think I am more an Angelino than I am. Can, I don't want to say that, but I'm really not. I'm still very Canadian, but I've lived in Los Angeles longer than I lived in Canada. And so L.A. was home and Freddie and I actually had a pretty in-depth conversation about whether or not I wanted to fight it aim towards the Olympics or turn pro. And he actually kind of, we, he, he said, I think he said that pro was a better option for me. He said stylistically, it was, I always felt like a pro and I didn't have a lot of amateur fights and um, stylistically, it's not my thing. And then also the weight classes were a thing because there was only three weight classes at the time. And mm -hmm. it was like 112, I think. 135 and 165 and at the time I when I'd had amateur fights I'd always been at um 152 so 65 was heavier than I really kind of like even walked around it and then 35 I could make 35 if I cut off a leg or something there's no way. so <laughs> so there was just like like I didn't see any options in terms of that so that was my decision. Did you go to Vancouver first to, to train with boxing? Was that your first no. stop? No. No. I started boxing in L.A. Huh. I didn't start boxing until I was 25, 26 years old. Wow. So what were you doing before yeah. then? Like maybe, maybe 24. I was 24. 
So, like, I mean, it's so interesting because you're training A-list celebrities now. I think your words are it's a great framing device, turning them into superheroes. How do you how do you get from the Sunshine Coast to L.A.? What is that journey like? It's really <laughs> long. It's like super convoluted. What I've realized lately, not lately, but what I've come to terms with is the fact that um, I don't think that I've ever lived a quote unquote normal life. And I don't think that I was set up to do that. And I, um, I don't think I'm supposed to. With that said, I always wanted to travel and see the world. And I always wanted to leave. And I, I started reading at three. I was always in advanced studies in school. I um, had a, a tumultuous kind of childhood, um, which left me in a position uh, as a late teen where I could kind of do what I wanted so by the time I graduated high school I was already working two jobs and I went to travel I want which is what you know we do which is what Canadians do and I think a lot of Americans don't understand this and I really think that America would be better suited Americans would and the education system would be better suited if they did what Canadians and a lot of other people do which is you take a year or two off after high school you travel the world you see things you experience life and then you come home and go to school if you're so inclined and you kind of get a you know grow because going from high school to college directly seems insane anyway I left Canada um I left the first time I went to go to Mexico for a few months, six, six months with a friend who ended up not going. So I went by myself uh -huh. with a backpack. And at this point in time, I was I like super punk rock, had very, very short hair, pierced nose, the whole thing. I was like, and I've always been very um, politically minded kind of, and social justice has always been something that I care about and really like the most important thing to me currently and at any point in time is always making a difference in the world. And I always felt like I had the power to do so as everyone does. And I'm not afraid to do that. So when I left, I went to go to Chiapas, which at the time there was all the stuff was going on with the Zapatistas and the EZLM. And I took a backpack and I went traveling through Mexico for a few months. And when I came back, I came back through Texas. This is a, again, I told you this is a long story, but it's pretty great. And I've asked people, for it. And Pretty indicative of me and uh, how I navigate the world and also just like serendipitous ways that things happen in my life. So one, one of the, when I'm in Mexico, I met some people, just random different people. One of them ended up being one of my best friends. He was British. Um, I met this couple and I went to Tulum. And at the time, Tulum, uh, there was no hotels in Tulum. There was one place you could stay. And it was called uh, Don Francisco's. And it was like a family-run restaurant on the beach. And they had palapas. And you could rent like a palapa. Or if you had a tent, you could pitch a tent on the beach. That's all there was. There was no fancy hotels. There was no white people wandering the beach. It was just like a bunch of global meandering hippies who had heard that Tulum was like a magical place. And people who kind of were in the know. When I was there, I met this couple who he is a musician and she worked in entertainment and he, they lived, they lived in Venice. So I met them. They ended up leaving. I traveled the rest of Mexico with my British friend. As I was coming back through Texas, I came, I went down the West coast through Chiapas, through Tulum and stuff. And then up the other coast through Mexico city. When I came back, uh, something happened with my credit card and it wasn't working. Well, it was a debit card and it wasn't working. And I, um, 
am a person who doesn't have like a fallback. So I don't have a way to, I don't have people to call, right? When shit hits the fan, I don't have, I've never had anyone to like bail me out essentially. So I um, was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. And keep in mind, I've been to Mexico for a few months. So I'm super, super brown. I have very short hair. <laughs> I looked like I, when I think about myself now, I think I probably wouldn't have spoken to me because I'm sure that I had that face that you saw at the gym that was unapproachable because I think I've always had that face. Um, and but for some reason, this older gentleman like who worked, it was the, I took the bus through Mexico. And so I took the bus back through Texas and I was in, I don't know, somewhere in Texas. And this older gentleman who was a bus driver was like, what are you doing? It's two o'clock in the morning. I was in Houston. He was like, what are you doing in Houston at two o'clock in the morning at the bus station? You look like, and I was 18 years old, 17 or 18 years old. Like I was super young. And he was like, young lady, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm, and he was like, well, you can't just be wandering. I was like, I was trying to see if I could get my bank card to work because it's not working. And I need to buy a plane t or a bus ticket to go back to Canada. And he was like, well, that's really far. And you can't just be wandering around Houston like this. So he said, listen, um, I drive a bus. It goes from here to, to San Antonio. The guy who drives the bus from San Antonio goes through Phoenix to LA. And if I'll ask him to take you. So just get on my bus. You'll be fine. So I get on this guy's bus and he like, tells me not to pay, sits me on the bus. And I think about this often now, like what are the chances that somebody's grandpa who drives a Greyhound bus is going to see this young girl at two o'clock in the morning and say like, what are you doing? Oh no, don't worry. I'll take care of you. Come get on my bus. I'm just going to put you on the bus and then say, I'll ask the next bus driver to take you for free. To, and I, and I, what I said was, if I can at least get to Los Angeles, I know people there. And so he said, I, you know, I got you. So we get to San Antonio and he realizes that it's not his friend who's driving the other bus. So he's like, I, I'm so sorry. I can't ask this other person because I don't know him and I'll lose my job. I was like, it's fine. I'll figure it out because this is me in life. I'll figure it out. So <clears throat> I was in the Greyhound bus station restroom probably like washing my like changing my clothes or something and some woman who's British saw me and was like what are you doing or said something to me we struck up a conversation turns out she's a singer and she said well listen I'm going to play this folk festival which is the Kerrville folk festival which if you're into folk music apparently it's a big thing that's been going on for like 40 years it's, it's my life it's my yeah, life folk music it is. yes and um she said listen I'm going there uh, my husband coming to meet me we live in LA but I'm one of the heads she was like pretty well known so she said I'm playing if you go there she said listen I have a couple of dates I have to play tonight and tomorrow night but I'll buy you a bus ticket there go there wow. tell them you're with me and then tell them you need to go home she's like 100% sure she's like there's thousands of people there so somebody will be going back to the Pacific Northwest and I was like okay so I get there and I do what I know how to do which is work and um, I've cooked for a living. So I was like, helped. There was like a communal kitchen. So I helped in the kitchen and she showed up and we became very close with and her husband is um, a pretty famous like session musician and she is a singer songwriter. <clears throat> and we just struck it off. Like we were just fine. And so, like she said, someone was like somebody there. I don't remember how one of the administrators was like, oh, I know someone who's going back to Seattle. Ask this dude 
who drove me back to, I drove back to Seattle with this guy who never tried anything, like was super chivalrous and was just this like long haired, looks like an extra from, um, what's that show, uh, what that movie, um, set in Seattle singles or, or whatever, that had Matt mm-hmm. Damon in it. Remember, he looked like an extra, like grungy or an extra, like he looked like that. And um, anyway, so I went home I went, and then I got back home to Canada. I worked a couple of jobs, went to England, and went from England to St. Lucia, was in St. Lucia for a while, and I would, would I maintained a friendship with this woman whose name is Sheila. And at some point, she'd email me and she said, listen, I signed that record deal. She'd been telling me she was gonna sign a record deal. She's like, I signed a record deal, why don't you come work for me? <clears throat> and that's how I ended up in LA. So I went home to Canada, and then I came to LA, and I came to work for her. And that is the, the long story short of how I ended up in Los Angeles. Well, A, that's a fantastic story. <laughs> um, I guess I have one question about it. One of my favorite books is by Italo Calvino, and, and it's called Invisible Cities. And there's a point at which it's it's basically about a Kublai Khan has the largest empire in the world, and he's having Marco Polo come visit him every day just to have a discussion about what is my kingdom because I can't physically go there. You're the biggest traveler in the world. Tell mm-hmm. me about my kingdom. Mm-hmm. And. At, and every chapter is a different city that's being described by Polo in mm. very, very lyrical, poetic, funny terms. They're often like riddles or poems. Um, after about 20 of these, they get interrupted and Khan says, okay, stop for a second. You've told me about 20 different cities. I still don't really know where you're from. I've heard you're from Venice. Why <laughs> aren't you talking to me about where you're from? And he says, that's all I've been talking about have I been talking about anywhere else? And I love that as a concept that as we're people, I do the same thing. Whenever I'm traveling to all these different places in a way, I'm kind of revisiting my past in a way that I couldn't do while I was living it Mm. and reclaiming bits of it that maybe I wasn't able to metabolize while I was living it or, you know, we, we, so I'm curious, You've skipped over where you're born. You've skipped over your family. You've skipped over that you're mixed race. In a place <laughs> like Canada where, you know, I, 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 I don't remember a lot of African-Americans, not African-Americans, but black people in Vancouver and suddenly to go to Toronto and be like, wow, there's this thriving diversity that there's no connection with it in Vancouver. And you could easily pass as Mexican. You could easily pass as Puerto Rican. I'm sure you could pass as being mixed race of any number of races. So I'm just wondering a bit about Little Holly and what allows you to be simultaneously so tough a person and adventurous, but also a very sensitive, unfortunately for me, because it bothers me, <laughs> likable. <laughs> I'm not surprised that any of these people want to help me. I just don't understand that aspect. I don't know I, why you're such a hater. Like, I, it's I struggle with it. It's been I like su- this forever. It's I know. Really like, it's very <laughs> shitty for a Canadian. You know, someone at, at Wildcard, I mean, because all I do is talk shit at the gym because that's my gym persona and I'm known as the gym bully, which I actually relish because that's a good position for a woman to be in a space that is male-dominated because then you don't get... I don't get as much crap as everyone else does because I buffer it in advance with shit talk. Um, We're all scared of you. I was the me- he told me I was the meanest Canadian and I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so like what, 
what launches you? I've noticed you've just mentioned that you've lived longer in LA than you did in Canada, and I noticed that once I moved to New York, I, as of last month, it's been ten years for me in the United States and in New York. And whenever I was asked after I moved, when are you when are you going to go back and visit Vancouver, or would you ever move back? Without thinking, my knee jerk response was never. I've put in my time there, and I want to go maybe somewhere else, but I certainly mm. don't want to go back. Mm. And I don't know if it's th that way for you, but what is what is little Holly as a girl doing something that has taken a lot of society a while to wrap their head around, which is go straight into the hurt game, to go into helping other people get bigger and stronger and feel safer in the movies and project this image for women of strength. I want to know what... What allowed you to, to gain insight and perspective to be so useful at that? What did you go through to help you with that? I mean, I've been through a lot and I definitely, uh, I'm not sure that I want to go in depth in terms of like my childhood, but I certainly grew up um, surrounded by violence and trauma and was the recipient of both. Um, and I think because of such, because of, it's, you know, I've always been a little bit of a lone wolf because I had to care for myself, so, and others. And that's also, I think, where I get the, you know, there's a whole nurturing side of me that is a little bit tough love, but I'm very protective of people. And I think that, that certainly came from that. But I also think my urge and my, like, wanderlust came from um, wanting to see outside of the space that I... I in the environment that I was in and you know I grew up in now I look at it as idyllic in a lot of ways you know I'm sure you grew up in Vancouver which is you know it's a small city now and at the time the growing up it was an even smaller city right mm -hmm. but I grew up in a tiny town where in the summers we were just told to leave the house at 8 a.m and we were allowed to come back when it gets dark, which in the summer because of daylight savings is like 10 p.m. And yeah. I think about that often. I think about the fact that I grew up in a time and a place where I was allowed to wander and be free. And, you know, that certainly had its ups and its downs. And I, I grew up uh, very poor. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that there was a certain amount of hardship, but there was also a lot of that stuff that builds resiliency. And I am, I'm, you know, this whole thing with like, the, and I joke about this, but like, as a, if there's a zombie apocalypse, I'll survive. Like, I will survive. I yeah. know how to survive because I, I, I came from a place that like taught me survival skills. I can sail a boat. I can kill an animal. I can probably transfer that to killing a person if I needed to be. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know that sounds terrible, but there's there's things that like there's skills and which is the same reason that I I bake. You know, like I can cook things from scratch. I know about um, herbal remedies and I know about nutrition and certain basic stuff that I got from being raised by hippies and living largely off the land is stuff that's very wildly popular now and I know the actual truth and the basis of that because that's what I was like steeped in growing up um, and I think that that definitely uh, influenced the way I look at the world as well as because it was always with awe like I always wanted to absorb things and I'm an avid reader. I like reading more than I like watching television. I still do. Um, and so I remember being little and reading books about other places and being, oh, I want to see that. I want to feel that. 
And I've never wanted to, you know, I'm not a person who now in this day and age of like social media travel where people go places and take pictures and like take pictures of themselves in front of things. Like I don't have a lot of those. I have to be forced into doing that stuff because I've been places, but I like to like absorb it and feel it. And I like tangible things. And I like to feel the sun on me and feel the wind and know what that actually like feels like as opposed to what it looks like. And um, I think that that's what allowed me to walk in the world at a young age in a way that was both very, very guarded and also very, very, very naive. And so I think that those two things don't usually coexist, mm. but those are two things that are very, like, perfect descriptions of me, especially at a young age, right? Like, I'm, and I still am very guarded. I can skip over whatever because I can defer a conversation if I want to, and I'm well aware of the fact that I didn't really answer your question yet. And, <laughs> but, you know, I also um, was confident enough to be like, fuck it, I'm going to take a backpack and go to Mexico by myself. Do I speak Spanish? No, but I speak French fluently. It's not that different. It's fine. You know, <laughs> it was okay by the time. I still can't roll my R's. My Spanish is still trash. But, um, you know, I made it. And when you think about the fact that I was a young woman by herself traveling through different countries and nothing happened to me. And I think that I think about that often. Um and I think, like, I don't believe in chance and I don't believe in coincidence. I'm, I don't necessarily believe in fate as one omnipresent thing, but I do believe in serendipitous happenings that will allow you to see your path, maybe, if you choose to see them. And if you, you know, some people are not equipped, like, some people will never have those things. It's the same way I end up in LA. It's the same reason I... I'm able to work in entertainment. Like all of my stuff is just one series of like serendipitous happenings that kind of one after another happen because I've been open to them. And also um, I never expected anything other than that, really, you know? I just, yeah, I mean, I think I'm always interested in the people. There's some people you meet and maybe you completely misread them or maybe you're put off by them sometimes. But when I see somebody and I misread them and then later on I get another opportunity to revisit them and they drop their guard and you find you're, there's an immediate shorthand. There, there's an immediate, um, I think the word is like landsman where it's like as if you're from the same place but it's meant more mm -hmm. meta metaphorically. And I, you're definitely one of those people where the person that I met and was trying to reverse engineer who is this person versus when we first had a conversation I was like, people seem to respond to you in a lot of the ways that I've had people say to me, I assume you were this, but you're quite another thing. And I was wondering what that would be like as a woman to go through life as versus as a guy, because for me in particular, not that, not that this is analogous to the vulnerability that you're describing being a woman alone, but like being the smallest kid every year in school, you're aware even if you get in an argument with a girl, she can beat you up. Like it can escalate to violence and you're in trouble. And I definitely felt that. And then suddenly boxing for me was a way to gain armor to feel safe in the world physically because at least people could read into my bluff that it was not worth the trouble to 
try to humiliate me or hurt me or attack me. And I'm not saying that that's the same for you, but seeing how well you had created an artifice that looked tough and kind of scary and intimidating versus how articulate you are, how bookish you are, how nerdy you are, and a lot of like <laughs> the backstage pass. Um, I, I would tell everyone that. I know. <laughs> I know. But at the same time, the toughness is very real with you. I mean, I've, I've watched some of your fights. I think after we met, I went on YouTube and watched some of these fights. And getting to know you, I was very ambivalent about your relationship with uh, electing to, to be in a violent sport and stuff like that. Obviously, I love it's boxing, though. Like, I, I love all parts of it. And I think, I mean two points that you made. One is that I think that we have a shorthand because I think that we are cut from the same cloth in many ways. Yeah. And I think that often uh, the older you get, and I'm certainly old, the older you get, uh, the more you start to hopefully put in a little bit of introspection into yourself and understand like how you work and why you work certain ways and also why you work in the world in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So I know that I navigate I navigate every space um, differently, but the same. I am always, I'm always me. Like the, whatever you get with me, if it's if it's if it's hard me who has her face, like that that's who I am. But that part of me is there for a reason, right? And and I believe you know there are multiples of most of us. It's just that most people choose to like keep hold on to and express the one that's the easiest for everyone else to digest and also yeah. the one that makes it easiest for them to navigate their place in the world and I think that I um from a very very I mean I've I uh how do I say this I have a high IQ but I think that my EQ is higher than my IQ so I think that my emotional intelligence is higher than my IQ, and my IQ is certainly above average. And I've known that since I was a child. But when you put those two things together, and I think you have a bit of the same, you, you certainly have a high IQ. I don't know about the EQ, you're kind of a jerk sometimes, but. Appreciate that, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but when, you, when you have that, I think you're forced to, and when you come from a place, you know, when you come from a place of trauma and struggle, you are forced to face things at a young age that most people are not, right? So I, I remember being like five, six years old and it's the summer and I'm outside with my cousins and we're looking up at the sky and there's stars. And I remember contemplating like my place in this vast universe and how mm -hmm. small I was and how small I was always going to be. And like whether or not there could ever be anything I could do that could cause any kind of a ripple of, and I don't think in terms of positivity and negativity, because I think those are like, those polarities are not, they're too extreme. But um, I've always cared about the underdog. I've always cared about making a difference. And I think a lot of that is just because I had to grow up fighting. So I had to grow up fighting for myself and to exist. And I think if you grow up having to like scrabble and scramble to like, just make it. Um, Did you ever find it hard I mean, I remember dealing with the impact of feeling very vulnerable or very sensitive to people or, or um, 
this feeling of vulnerability that, that I felt like oversensitivity, one of the ways that I overcompensated, I think, was to be a, a fucking asshole to people and to be predatory with with the <laughs> with with my own kind of ability to, to have empathy, which is something I think I got from my mother, which is a very immediate sense with people that I meet um, to read into who they would most like to to be or how they would most like to be seen and what they're mm. most hiding. And as a defense mechanism, I would want to expose what they were hiding as quickly as possible, like a tarot reader That's to say. That's because of the bullying. That's because you were bullied. So you have that, bullied. which is a, a natural reaction to most people. Like that's a very, that's super common, right? It is, but I it's think interesting like. interesting because my reaction isn't, and I read people really well, but my yeah. reading of them has never been intellectual. It's always been emotional. So I've always had to sense things and I feel things. So sometimes I just feel things that I can't um, articulate it. If you were to ask me like, how did you know to ask that person then? But like, I don't know, I just knew. But it's the, mm -hmm. it's, it'll, if it kind of allows me to, to shift a little bit for people. And while I am a wise ass and a smart ass with most people, and that's kind of the way I found this, there's a line there with men that makes it easy. like. I'm really good with men because I'm good at being a smart talking like shit talker. I know about sports. I can like break stuff down and then I'm not offended by a lot of stuff. So there's a way for me to like kind of deflect, but it also allows me space. It gives me a lot of space with them. And then people don't really know particularly men. Like they don't get to be close to me emotionally. So it's definitely a defense, like a defense mechanism, but it, um, and mine was, so my, so what you're saying is like, I think we read people differently, but, but in being able to read people, my thing is always that when I read them and I see that thing that is hurt or is broken or is, I'm like, oh, that's what it is. That's why you do this. Like, mm -hmm. and no matter how bad that this is, like, I can be like, oh, well, this is it. I don't usually go there right away. It's like, I find a way to like crack a joke to like kind of like buffer it in some way. And then I like ease my way in. And then at some point, point in the future they'll open up to me and that's my deal so that's how I'm able to people everybody tells me everything I know everything about every everything about everyone and sometimes it's like heavy but the way I'm able to do that is because people are comfortable with me and the only reason they're comfortable with me is because I can see them and I let them know that I've seen them and I think that that you know I, 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 I don't have the the need to kind of joust in that capacity or, or like jab with them really necessarily. Cause I'm generally pretty like the, the sarcasm is a thing that comes with me, but it's like, I'm really protective too. And I'm pretty cognizant of people's where they're coming from. And, and even if I don't know exactly why it's pretty easy to figure out why people are certain ways. And if that's the thing I've always, you know, and again, I've always been, always cared about the underdog i've always yeah. the, like i'm the person who always wanted to adopt the three-legged dog you know like i'm that's me like like i'm the person who cries because i see some kid on the street with a dirty shirt and, like i know he's not eating like like that's who i am so i i don't know i just it's been interesting though like finding figuring that out about myself more and realizing that there's 
certain things that I do and why I do them and how I do them. And there was lots of stuff that I think I just inherently did and I didn't understand the whys of it. And as I've gotten older, I figured it out more, which has allowed me to do more work on myself internally and also be better at communicating with people about this. Because I certainly could not have articulated all of this five, six, seven years ago. You know, I, I definitely did not. I was, a, I knew that I had certain abilities, but like, I didn't know the whys of it and just how it worked. Well, and I think, I, I wonder if this is true for you, but like, there are people out there, th there's always a different calibration of, maybe this is oversimplistic, but like when I think about coming home from school to my mother versus my father or other kids coming home, um, my father had like a tremendous, powerful <laughs> sense of like the maternal of like, if you were sick, nobody was better at looking after you. Nobody was more comprehensive in addressing what your issues were. Um, my mother was hugely caring, but it was odd, like now looking back on what my father was offering, he was never really comfortable with men. He liked women. He liked very physical lesbians who were in the neighborhood where he lived. Like those were his friends, but he hated sports. Jocks really made him uncomfortable on many levels. And he had like, a, I think, a very parochial view of jocks that they were all hyper-masculine. And one of the real discoveries for me with boxing gyms was how amazingly complex the relationship between the masculine and the feminine and the maternal and the paternal is in gyms. Like, mm. and I think like you, you represented to me when I first saw you as this very like masculine kind of expression, you were still very feminine, but like you presented this energy that was just stay away from me. And it wasn't the quote unquote resting bitch face. It was just this intense drive focus. I'm in here to train. Don't fuck with me. And then I'm, I'm leaving. But I've always felt it odd to be around women in that I do like the masculine stuff in many ways, I think in a pure way. But for the most part, I feel debilitated by the oversensitivity of seeing the world much more similarly to women that I'm friends with than men a lot of the time, who I think are just as emotional, but it's harder to express it. It's harder to v verbalize a lot of stuff. Whereas women love to discuss it and articulate it and exchange these, these kind of perceptions. And just by, by dint of the kind of being in the world as a writer who's a witness, where it's like we feel a little bit like we're not actually present in our lives, living it the way I think athletes do to the extreme, we're the fly on the wall, staring at ourselves, living the life. So some of us need to like, be our own terrible casting director, miscasting us in all kinds of roles that we do not belong in. For me, one was boxing or a lot of very male things that I thought, boy, I, don't, I certainly don't intuitively connect to this from where I've come from, but I'm drawn to it. And I remember something that was quite interesting for, for all of the, the reputation Hemingway has for being this toxic, toxic masculinity personified when his, the women who knew him all said that every mask you see of his where like a Truman Capote looked at him and said he's a closet everything. They said he was a closet nothing. He was all of them. 
even though they all contradict themselves, he was every one of these expressions of like the very bookish person learns five languages, the traveler, the brute who's a drunken asshole, the bully, the supporter of the underdog. They were all honest expressions of an incredibly multifaceted person. Well, I think most people are, well, everyone is, right? There's dimensions to everyone. And then mm -hmm. there's two varying degrees. So it's like everyone has, there are multiples of everyone. It's just that a lot of people, there aren't that many multiples. And there's the, like, disparity between the two, the between them is not as extreme, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's not as black or white. Or, it, you know, I think most people can grapple with certain things but there's it's there's a lot more gray area with most people and yeah. i think that you, there's multiples of you and they're very extreme and very black and white is when it gets confusing i think that that's i mean i've been told that that's very much like me like i'm that to a oomph degree yeah i, I love so. i love boxing like i love boxing but what i love about boxing is that it is cerebral like it's it's literally chess and it, when people say it's not, it's, and I know that it, that's a phrase that's used kind of common, commonly, but it is, it's like, I'm doing something to make you do something so I can do something after that. And yeah, it's totally chess. I love that. And for me, it was, it was grasping and grappling with me being able to control my emotions and then it control my emotional response. And I, because of upbringing, like, I have a physical response to things and also because I, I'm used to defending things and defending people. So like my, I, I will stand and fight. I'm the person who will turn around and face that motherfucking monster. Like that's who I am by nature or probably by environment, actually probably not by nature, but learned behaviors that that's who I am. But mm. in boxing, I learned how to rein that in and not just react and mm -hmm think my way through and I love the like tiny nuances of it and I love that if you don't catch a punch properly with your elbow tucked that elbow is going to hit you the, the punch might hit your arm then that elbow is going to hit your hip bone and that's going to hurt just as much as a punch is going to hurt right so it's about mm -hmm. that and I love the like being able to see a tail when someone pulls a little bit or like little things but I'm I'm very interested in being, a, you know, that's part of like studying human nature and being curious and caring about like, because I, I like, I love that. I love that in boxing, but I like that in my day to day with people anyway. I like to like figure people out. That's what I like about training is everyone's an equation and I want to figure the equation out. And if I can figure your equation out, then we can get really, really good results and we can get really big things. Um, but that's, that's a cerebral, that's a complex, people are complex and they come with all of this baggage and all of these things. And so I, I have to figure that out. And often the figuring it out isn't some, you know, X times Y equals whatever. It's like, I have to feel my way through, through things and understand mm. that like you react in a certain way. So if you react in a certain way to certain stuff, sometimes I don't know in the front of my brain what that means, but I can feel it. And if mm -hmm. I can feel it, then that means that I can respond in a certain way that will allow you to ease up or harden up if I need you to, one of the two. And that's the same thing with boxing. I think that boxing is, I love that about it. I love that it's it's this really cerebral thing that is often boiled down to this brute strength 
thing, which is why I say that I love boxing. I don't love fighting. Like I love boxing. Mm. I love the sport. I love the science of it. I love discussing the nuances of it. It's, I really want to commentate because I care about the small things. I, I can explain why someone's hook is a certain way or why they throw a check hook better than an outside hook. Like I know all of those things because I care about the like nuances of it as opposed to, Oh, she's strong and she's tough and she's whatever. Like, yeah, that's not in, that's just like not interesting to me, you know. Well, you love the psychology of it and how the psychology is manifested in these physical ticks. Because yeah, you're right. Like every person is this like painting you're trying to deconstruct in order to predict where where they're coming from, what motivates them, how they don't want to be, how to make them uncomfortable. Um, you know, it's a it's a fabulous kind of poker game. Well, I wonder, and let's let's put this to to like what you do now, like what you you have as a as a pretty amazing gig, where like with Gone Girl, you get involved with Rosalind Pike, Rosmond, yeah, Rosmond Pike. Sorry, I want to know what that is like to be presented with like a massive. Hollywood picture, David Lynch's directing it, Ben Affleck and her are starring in it, and you're in charge of a really complex role for somebody who I'm sure was, I mean, she's a fat, fantastic actress, but I mean, still, that was a complex role and very controversial um, love story, if, if that's the right term for it, where she's making a big body transformation, and yeah. you're there to help her through this, so I wonder... How the hell do you go from being in LA to like, how does somebody get a job like that? Let alone a job I, like that. So high up. Like occurrences. I, I really think that there's a lot of people that wish their way into, or, or wish they could find their way into the relationships I have now and the people I know and, who I work with and that stuff. And it's, I, I think part of why I am where I am is just because I, I, I never had any, I don't have any like Hollywood aspirations, you know, like I'm, I'm not, it's not something that I care about. I'm not, I think you see a lot of people, I think there's some people in boxing, I think particularly women's boxing where they see it as an easy in to some attention and they want to parlay it into something else. Um, when I stopped fighting, which is a whole other story, that's I was in a fucked up place and I was like depressed and I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't want to stop fighting, but I had to stop fighting. Hence me like mixing up names and stuff right now because I'm trying to like backtrack with this. And I didn't know what I was doing and I had trained before I'd been a trainer. I've done many things. Also, this is the other thing like I've worked in the arts, I've worked in music, um, and I'd been a trainer for a little while. And so that was the easy go to and someone I know asked me to come work for so the doctor from the biggest loser had an inpatient clinic where he based it's called the clinic where he did essentially the biggest loser stuff but it was like based on his whole foundation foundational like beliefs in terms of health and so I was working for him and Fincher was his client and so he had emailed me one day at this point I had kind of stopped working for him because he's a little bit of a he, was, he and I just differ on our opinions on health and wellness. Let's say that. So he had um, approached 
approached me, he emailed me and just said, Hey, I have this client who needs a trainer and a chef and a nutritionist. And he asked me and he had an in-house chef there and she and I were friends. And I said, sure. I, sure. That was it. And I said, okay. And he said, it's a role for a film. Are you interested? And I said, sure. And so, you know, they connected me and, um, the chef couldn't do it. Who was a nutritionist. She was like, I can't do it. And he said, okay, well I'll handle that. And then I also have like, some knowledge in that so he I ended up working they I don't know they connected us in some way with me with Roz I went to meet her one day and we just clicked we were good I really loved her I love her she is one of my like dearest people in the world um and I was with her for months and months and months and obviously like not obviously but for that film she we had to gain she had to gain weight they shot these certain specific scenes where she had gained weight and then she had like 10 days to lose the weight and then she had to maintain that body while they shot for months. And then they had to do reshoots, which some people don't really understand, but like sometimes they have to do reshoots. They had to do reshoots and some of the reshoots they had to do, she had this other body. So she had to gain weight again and wow. then she had to lose it. So like there was a twofold thing. And during the first week of her gaining or the first thing of her gaining weight, we did this whole thing. And again, it's an equation and that's like what I like. Cause I'm a nerd. So like that whole part of it is like interesting to me. And mm -hmm. um, obviously you're with somebody every day, all day, not every day, all, every day, not all day, but every day. And then she had to cut weight. And because I'm a fighter, I know how to cut weight. And I understand, I understand that if you put on muscle and then you put fat on top of the muscle, you're going to look bigger. But then if you cut the fat, it's like a massing thing, right? If you cut the fat, then you look leaner than you ever have. You might be a little bit heavier, but you're going to be leaner. And that's what I did with her. Um, and then that, you know, she was nominated for an Oscar for that. And she spoke really highly of me. I got a lot of press from that. Um, and that kind of opened one door after another. And I have like very personal relationships. You know, I don't work with anybody that I don't like as a human being. Um, I am really, really particular about like who I work with. And that's, that's like the only thing. And then from there, it's like, parlayed into other opportunities basically was it is it how i don't know stressful was it to get such a high profile gig like that and it was nothing it was just another thing yeah you know, i David mean Fincher, well and, Ro and i are like we're tight she had a baby at the time who was not quite a year old and then she got pregnant after shooting and had to lose she got pregnant after shooting and then was nominated for like an Oscar and a bunch of awards. So then during award season, we had, she had the baby, we had to lose the baby weight, but because we have, when you're talking about the shorthand, like she was instantly, we were instantly just good. So that's just, it was easy. And I don't, um, I don't know. I'm not impressed with like stuff that I think other people are impressed with. Do you find like, what is the, what is the milieu of Hollywood like compared to boxing? Because it seems so interesting to me that you have so many A-list actors, mainly male, but there, there's obviously like Million Dollar Baby, um, where you had Hilary Swank do it, where they all want to crack at boxing. They all want to crack at getting in super good shape and being beaten up. I don't up do any boxing with anyone. You never do it? I mean, I have a couple clients now that like they're men that I train in boxing, but none of them are actors. Huh. I, I, I'll do a workout every now and again if somebody wants to, but I'm not, 
I don't box with people. That's not what I know. Nope. But I mean, just as people, like for you working from like <coughs> these two groups that you know really intimately, I mean, you were at Wildcard all the time. You're close with Freddie. Arguably, the Wildcard is like the most famous gym probably of the 21st century. And mm -hmm. it was like an incredible intersection of Hollywood and athletes, right? Like it was such a hub, a magnet yeah. for people. It's what has been interesting for me is like when I meet, when you meet, when you meet people that you're like, oh, what are you doing? And like, oh, I have a net show on Netflix. Like, yeah, I have a show. It's on Netflix. And I'll be like, okay. Or they have their on some TV show that I don't know because I don't watch a lot of TV, right? So and I'll be like, oh, that's cool. Like, whatever. Those people say that when you meet people who are like, like A-list, because there's not that many of them, right? Like, no, there's no. not that many like A-list people. When you meet like A-list Hollywood, like top of the line, they are kind of similar to like world champions in that they're generally just like humble, like pretty normal, like won't necessarily stand out in a crowd. Uh, people might recognize them because facially they recognize them, but they don't have behavior and stuff that's like showy and like attention. I think with boxers is the same thing. Really good boxers are like pretty chill by nature. And like, you know, think about all of the like, even Floyd, who everybody thinks of as like the showman of all showmans and the loudest, nah, 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 nah. you meet him like one on one with out an audience, he's chill and pretty cool. You know, like he's not, he doesn't, and he needs more attention than most people, I think. So yeah. if, you, if you meet, you know, Rigandau is like, I remember when he was at Wildcard. Because I didn't understand that he was Cuban. At first, I didn't know who he was, and somebody Plane, and I said something and then I like cracked some terrible joke in my like terrible Spanglish because my Spanish is awful and I said something about how poorly I spoke Spanish and he like half laughed and then looked at the ground and like didn't even like he didn't want to like he didn't want me to see that he was actually laughing like there was something yeah. there with him and I mean he reminds me of Eeyore he's always like so sad and like, like so sad Eeyore. I always think of him as being Eeyore. So, like, he's just like, mm. oh. and he, he emanated that, and I was like, oh, and, and that of course, because of who I am, like, that drew me to him. Like, I was like, oh, I love him. Like, what? who is this sad mm -hmm. fucking guy with these gold teeth? Like, who is yeah. he? And so when he, like, did that thing, and he kind of, like, chuckled and, like, didn't want it, and I was like, oh, interesting. But, you know, I mean, I've met the best of the best, and they're all, Manny's pretty chill. Like, they're all, I'm trying to think of, like, everyone I've met through boxing, and I've met so many people, and they're, you know, most of the greats are just, like, chill. And I think that when you reach a certain level of aptitude at anything, you don't need to be showy about it anymore. That's what it is. When you know that you're good at something, you don't need to shout it from the hilltops, because what you yeah. do shows it. No, I think you're totally right. I mean my experience where you're privileged enough to meet them and it's not for a photo op, but it's like to, let's say like I'm dropping in on you for three days, like Andre Ward has a strut that is like when you're a little kid and you go to the zoo and you go to see <coughs> the tiger or the lion, they don't have to do anything to know that they're special. And you can forget for a little while as you're just you know, they're hungry, you get something to eat somewhere, you go for a drive somewhere, you stop over somewhere, and then the moment they walk into a boxing gym, you're like, oh yeah, he's the best in the world at this. I forgot. Yeah. 
I yeah. forgot that once he goes in the ring, I'm looking at like Barishnikov level skill sort yeah. of thing. And it's odd how compartmentalized they can be because to be that requires an entire life being focused on it from the age of eight onwards. Right. But if they're not training for a fight, it's like, yeah, I'd like to have some frozen yogurt, and I definitely need sprinkles on that. And, you know, you yeah. see the enjoyment of these are fat kids who are... Because they need to make weight. That's but it. Just like you live for your cheat day, and you definitely want the fucking steak. And yeah. the other thing is, and again, because there are not that many female fighters or women... Um, you know, I know more male fighters just because that's just the world. And I was always like the only female fighter coming out of wildcard at the time that I was there. Right. But you like, you know, they're also pretty simple. Like, let's be like, like, like they want to box and they want to go home to their family and they want to like, you know, like everyone. And then you also realize with boxers, it's like everyone has the, a lot of there's a lot of fighters that fight because they're very good at it and they've done it for their whole lives and while they may appreciate the sport and they appreciate what it brings them they don't love it right like they're not in love with the sport they just know that they're good at it and and there's a lot of the best in the world that are beautiful to watch that are tacticians that are just all of this stuff but it's it's because it's habit and it's years of repetition yeah. and it's you know it's not it's not necessarily the like the thing they're passionate about and when you figure out which is interesting because i'm actually working on a project where i'm going to be speaking with fighters about the things that they're passionate about that are outside of the ring and mm. i think that when you find that out it's always interesting when you find out the, the thing that you're like oh really yeah like, like drag racing that's so weird or like whatever it is and you'll find these things that are just like, you're like oh you like to raise goats like okay all right well, you're, you're totally right. Like Roy, Roy Jones's house, when you walk in, everywhere you look is cockfighting. Everywhere is like tapestry. It's less weird, to be honest with you. That's like not the best example because that's so on brand for him, if you think about it. Kind of. I mean, I, I mean I'm, you say that and I'm like, yeah, that, may, that actually that makes more sense than some of the other stuff that you find out that you're like, oh, really? Well, yeah. I mean, I think you're, I think you're right. I think. I found it really interesting with him. One of the things that just made me fall in love with him was he he was two hours late or whatever when I went to his house in Pensacola. And so I had little his little son, who was like 9 or 10 years old, and his daughter, who was maybe 11 or 12. And to see somebody who had been so abused as a kid, like Roy was by Roy Sr., um, that kid was a really gentle kid. That was not a scared kid. Those kids were not scared of their dad. And I could, I brought it up with Roy. It was kind of an uncomfortable thing to just be like, for somebody who absolutely hates their father, I bet it wasn't easy to have your kids to not, to not repeat it, to not continue that cycle. Know. Roy's always struck me as being a very gentle soul <laughs> he is no 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 he you but, know like he's always struck me as being in just at his core a fairly simple fairly kind man 
I think that that's like kind of like what I, the gist of what I've always gotten from him. Well, I, okay. Well, I think that's true. But I think like you were saying before about you, you being one way and then giving a lot of credit to your environment for allowing you to take a different path with like your hardware to walk a very different journey than you might not have taken had you not had the environmental dents that you were given. Roy's kids were exactly that, minus being mercilessly abused by their dad. Right. And they were such like lovable, loving kids. And I just thought, boy, like if this, if this is the inner Roy, how the fuck did this old man serially beat the shit out of you with like gym equipment all the time? I mean, how, I, think how- that, I think that's, I think you either become it or you are counter to it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know where I got like the ability, like I'm by nature, like nurturing, like I hug people and I'm affectionate and I'm like all of those things. And I don't know where I got that from, but it's counter to the way I grew up, right? And I think that that's, yeah. I think he probably, he probably is the same way, right? It's like, you just go the opposite direction and you know what you needed. So you pro- usually unconsciously just step into that. I just thought, I just found with him, like even, even his language, like he was the most pathological code switcher I have ever like been in a car with where he could do three phone calls with somebody locally in Pensacola. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, like, I do that. Like, it's pretty wild. You do too. Someone called me out on that recently. Yes, absolutely. It's very interesting to see. Because Pensacola, ease, I really picked up about 10% of the words. Yeah. Like, about 10%. It was, it was roughly like listening to Italian with my Spanish was him yeah. speaking English to Pensacola residents. Yeah. And I would nudge him and I'd be like, that's English, right? Like, that's not some dialect that, that is like a secret clandestine thing in the neighborhood. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, right. we're not talking the same language you were just on the phone with your friend with. It was just odd. So tell me, last question, what is next for you? What, what is on the horizon for you post-corona when you <laughs> get back to regular life? I mean, is the world going to implode? We do not know. Is everything going to fall I don't know. I don't know. Are zombies know. going to come up? We do not know. If they do, you know who I'm hiding behind? You. I mean, I'm ready. I have a big, big ass machete. Like a well, true West Indian. I got a big ass machete. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> Thank you, Holly. Thank you, Holly. It was nice to. I'm really glad to <laughs> chat. Yeah, appreciate that. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.